Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 111 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hope you guys are in the mood for some atheism, because there'll be a lot of that today. Later in the show, special guests James Morrow and Tobias Bakel will be joining me for a panel on writing and blogging as an atheist. But first up, we've got an interview with physicist Lawrence Krauss, author of such books as A Universe from Nothing and The Physics of Star Trek. The new documentary film The Unbelievers follows him and Richard Dawkins as they travel the world arguing in favor of atheism. And now, here's our interview with Lawrence Krauss. All right, so we're here with Lawrence Krauss. Welcome to the show. It's nice to be uh, here virtually, at least. Hmm. All right, so tell us about this new movie, The Unbelievers. How did you get involved with that? Well, um, the uh, the young team that made it were actually uh, fans of ours and um, had attended one of the first events I put, uh, put on in our Origins project at Arizona State University. And it was an amazing event. We filled up uh, an auditorium with 6,000 people for 12 hours. Uh, to listen to science, we had most of the well-known uh, scientists, uh, public intellectuals in the world there, and it was an amazing event. And afterwards, uh, actually, they they accosted me in the in the uh, parking lot. I remember, and they were fans, and and uh, and they had said, Gus, who's now the director, said uh, that it reminded him of a rock concert. <laughs> and uh, what they and they were former musicians. They also were filmmakers, but. They enjoyed several films, one about Radiohead, that uh, explored what it was like to tour, to be on the road. And, and what they wanted to make was a rock and roll tour film about science. And uh, in any case, all of this I heard, heard later, we started to talk. And, and uh, a few years later, they asked me to do a cameo in actually a science fiction movie that they were, they were making, which, which is almost finished now. But I, I did it, and I was very impressed with the quality of... Uh, of the work they were doing. And when we needed uh, some people to film and uh, potentially record several of our events for archiving for the Origins Project, I asked them to do it. Actually, the first event they did was an event with me and Richard. Uh, but I was, um, I was blown away by the quality of the product. And uh, they had talked to me about doing various films, including ones on my books. And Richard and I were scheduled to do a tour of Australia together doing several dialogues and three weeks before we actually went I actually managed to secure funding they talked to me about how much they'd like to maybe it would be a good start for doing a film and and um we managed to secure funding three weeks before the actual uh, departure date and it's amazing to think that they put it together in three weeks and had a film crew of six people two different crews in australia and that started what ended up being about eight months of following us around in various locations, first in Australia, in New York, in England, in Washington, in Phoenix. And um, they ended up doing taking 120 hours of footage uh, of us and, um, and put together the movie. And at the same time, we also thought about whether it would be reasonable to um, have, inter- have them interview or have us interview other people, in particular celebrities. Um, I was interested in the idea of 
you know, it's all right for Richard and I to be promoting science and reason, and people know we do. But I, I, want, I like the idea of trying to reach a broader audience. And it seemed to me important to, for people to know that their cultural role models, ranging from directors to movie stars, even though they weren't scientists, they were fascinated by science. And, and we were fortunate to get several, a lot, a lot of people I knew, from Woody Allen to Cameron Diaz to Werner Herzog, uh, Ricky Gervais, and others, to agree to be interviewed. And um, those interviews are at the beginning and end of the movie, and I think they're great. And they also, of course, they also hopefully will attract some people who don't know who Richard and I are. And the idea is to, is to not proselytize so much or against religion, or, um, but rather to get people talking, to get them thinking. And I hope, my great hope is that it will reach an audience who, have, who haven't thought about this, these questions. And the early results were encouraging. We had a big uh, screening where we um, provided people with questionnaires, and we learned a number of things. First of all, a lot of people said that after the movie, they spent the evening in a restaurant talking the whole evening about the movie and, and having a discussion with their friends, which is exactly what we want. But also equally interesting, people who declared themselves as religious were perhaps the strongest group for saying that they would encourage friends to see the movie, which really surprised us, I think. And that was also encouraging. And now um, now that it's out on iTunes and Amazon and mo in many places around the world, it's, it's really encouraging to see that that it's got a, uh, uh, a broad audience in the sense that it's uh, right now the number one documentary on, on iTunes. And I'm hoping, that that's the point, is not just to preach the converted. I'm hoping we reach a broad audience and get discussions going about the nature of science and, and reality and truth and, and, and nonsense. And, and it ends on a high note. Um, it actually ends, interestingly enough, and this says something, I think, in it, the last scenes are at something called the Reason Rally, the Rally for Reason, that was in Washington, D.C., oh, about two years ago. And um, 30,000 people from atheists and secularists and humanists and came to the mall to, to celebrate Reason. And what's amazing is that no mainstream media outlet covered it. 30,000 people were on the mall in Washington, and, and no mainstream outlet covered it, which I think says something about the um, the difficulty of openly saying that you question the existence of God. And, and as I say in the movie, it's unfortunate that you simply can't ask questions when it comes to religion, as you can with every other area of human activity from politics to sex. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I've been really excited about this movie since I first heard of it. And we've been contacting Gus for over a year, it seems like now, trying to, you know, set up an interview. And, and so I've sort of gotten a little bit of a glimpse of all the distribution problems and things that the, the movie's gone through. Um, sort of from your perspective, what kind of challenges has the movie faced with that? Well, I think, uh, well, it's been a learning experience. I've written a lot of books, but I've never, and I've appeared in a lot of documentaries, but I've never been involved in helping produce one and, 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 uh, and, and at that level. And the first thing I discovered is that documentaries are simply hard to get distributed in general. Uh, most distribution companies and media people uh, don't think there's a market for documentaries, which surprised me. Which surprised me a lot. And even though there was clearly a built-in audience, almost three hundred thousand people downloaded or viewed the trailer for this movie in the first month that the trailer came out. 
we still, even after the world premiere, when we did our world premiere, which was in Toronto at the um, Hot Docs uh, International Documentary Film Festival a, a year ago, the movie was sold out almost instantly. And people, there were lines for six hours to wait through the rain for extra seats, uh, last minute standing room. And they had to add an extra showing of the movie. And that we thought, wow, that's a good sign. But we couldn't, even then, we couldn't um, make a deal for distribution. And, uh, um, and partly, of course, it's the problems of documentaries in general. Most documentaries don't get distributed. But also, I think there has to be the, there's no doubt the, 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 the concern of some people, at least, that a movie about that's perceived to be about atheism might have problems uh, um, with uh, uh, distribution and sales. And, and I'm happy that, that the results of the last week at least have proved us right and, and, and those people wrong. There is interest. And, uh, uh, but, but even then, even from the time we signed with a distribution company, to get attention paid to ultimately distributing it, and we were receiving... And we felt very bad because the, our, the fan base was asking for this movie for a long time. And we said, well, we signed a distribution deal. And everyone said, great, when's it going to come out? And, and we, we didn't know, and we didn't know. And, he, and he, it was, it's been over a year since the world premiere, although that often happens. You know, People don't realize that movies get announced often a year before they, they come out. But there was great frustration among many people who kept saying, why won't it come out? Why, what are you doing? What are you holding on to it? We were as frustrated as anyone else, and we tried to convey that. And it's nice that at least uh, this portion of, of that, at least an initial release has taken place. But um, even so, of course, around the world, there, there are various countries where it hasn't come out in. It come, it's come out in the United States and Canada and England on, on, and digitally on, on video on demand and iTunes and Amazon. The DVD will be available probably by the end of this month. But even in countries, I'm in Australia right now, and um, and we, we did we we a lot of the movie it happens in Australia, and we had an Australian premiere at the Sydney Opera House, but uh, it still hasn't come out here, and it's sort of frustrating. Hmm. I mean, could you talk a little bit about your friendship with Richard Dawkins? Just how did you guys first meet, and how did you become the sort of tag team duo uh, traveling <laughs> the globe? Well, it it it's, it was sort of organic. It evolved. There was no strategy. It, uh, we first met probably over a decade ago and um, uh, at an event that we were both speaking at, uh, and we actually disagreed. We, uh, it, as, as um, Richard has described, as his first memory is me asking a question after a talk of his that was a difficult question to answer, and we, we disagreed about, I think, strategy in terms of reaching the public. I was concerned at the time about whether the best way to reach people was to sort of approach them and say, you know, you're wrong <laughs> hmm. and, 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 you, and maybe you're stupid, or at least you're not thinking correctly, whether that was the, whether you should instead approach people a little more gently. And we had a long discussion about that. And in fact, our initial discussion about educating people about science and about the nature of religion, we eventually following, um, a late evening, long discussion that we had, we decided to put it together as a Scientific American article, we, which was a dialogue between the two of us. And that was fun to work together on. And that was sort of the beginning of our relationship, if you wish, and our friendship. And then we've been together at events because uh, we, not because we were asked to be together, but we often have appeared together. 
And, uh, and, and what we about, oh, maybe about seven years ago, Stanford University asked us to, to do an event together and they wanted to have a moderator and uh, with us on stage. And, and Richard, Richard was pretty adamant ultimately that we shouldn't have a moderator, that we, it should just be a dialogue between the two of us. And, and that created a new style, which, which it was very successful. And, um, and as, as he says in the film, moderators usually get in the way, you know, they, they're, if there's more than two people around, then when those two people are having an inter, when A and B are having an interesting conversation, the moderator will often interrupt in the middle and say, "What do you think about that?" C, and and, and just <laughs> break the flow. And and um and we are both. I mean, obviously, I think you have to be a fairly um, well conditioned public speaker to to be able to comfortably have a dialogue and know how to pace it. And um, but we both have done that a lot. And and the di- so. I really enjoyed it, and Richard did, and I think the audience did. It uh, and we decided that we liked that format a lot. And um, after, and Richard wrote the 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 afterward for my most recent book, A Universe from Nothing, and um, and we thought it would. And he was he had a new book coming out, The Magic of Reality, around around that time, a little bit after that. And we thought it would be fun to have a series of dialogues, sort of talking about both those books or the content of both those books going back and forth and talking about everything from evolutionary biology to, to physics. And, and we, we had a dialogue at Arizona state, which, which had been filmed, as I say, by, uh, by Gus and Luke almost, uh, six months before we, we did the, uh, Australian tour. And then we did the Australian tour and it was, it was a challenge and it's, it's not so easy, but it, it, it was fun. And those formed the basis of, of, of material for, for producing the movie. And, and of course, uh, we also have, for better or worse, each of us been asked to debate groups from Muslim groups to the Archbishop of Sydney, and all of those things appear as well, or at least uh, sec- little uh, little bits of those events, to, to demonstrate the kind of things that we're doing. And we become not only close friends, but I think our views have converged more than they, well, certainly have converged. Uh, I don't know if... Richard has moderated his views a lot, but he has. And I've come to appreciate much more the need to be honest and confront the religious nonsense that permeates so much of our society. You know, people often call Richard strident, and maybe I did. But once my last book came out, and I, again, in the book, I, I, I just ask questions. I, uh, and there's very few places where I even discuss religion. But people react as if, and and call you strident just from saying, you know what, you know, how dare you propose that God isn't necessary to create a whole universe, that you can create a whole universe or nothing. And I began to realize that just asking questions, get you get called strident. And, and Richard is often misrepresented for being so. And I guess I've come to appreciate that a lot more, too, as, as I get uh, condemned for the same heresies as him. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was really interesting, you know, when the God Delusion first came out, all you heard in the press was, oh, Richard Dawkins is so philosophically and theologically naive, real philosophers slash theologians would just make mincemeat out of him. And I have to say, watching him debate various people, I have not been impressed at all by the arguments that they have been able to muster against uh, him. Well, really, the worst people, I, I have to say this, and I'll get more hate mail, especially from philosophers about this, but I've now, I've not done tons of debates with religious apologists. 
and philosophers, and for the most part, they're incredibly weak, especially, especially I find the, the philosophers, and, and let me point out, I have a lot of friends who are philosophers who, who understand the relationship, I think, between philosophy and science, but there's some people, some philosophers who think philosophy in some sense is a substitute for science, and in my book, I think I, I, I uh, well, I, I made a joke, which perhaps infuriated that group. I, I talked about the fact that a number of philosophers and theologians take exception with my discussion of nothing. And as I said, well, you know, they're experts at nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, that, that set the stage for, for subsequent debates. But you're right. I think, you know, I'm often called, oh, philosophically naive and or theologically naive. And then when you try and base a discussion, not on theology but, or, or philosophy, but on science, they still say, oh, you're theologically naive, as if, and this is the point. I was once in the Vatican uh, at the Pontifical Academy lecturing, uh, believe it or not, and talking to theologians. And what I said to them, and I was being a little facetious, but I was also being honest. I said, you know what? You have to listen to me, but I don't have to listen to you. And what I meant by that is that to be a, I don't know if this word, if this phrase is an oxymoron, but to be a sensible theologian, or at least one who's has pretense of being scholarly, you at least have to have some vague idea of what's going on in science, how old the universe is, et cetera, et cetera. But to do science, you don't have to know anything about theology. I mean, anything that theologians, and to some extent philosophers, scientists don't read theology, they don't read philosophy, it doesn't make any difference to what they're doing. For better or worse, it may not be a value judgment, but it's true. Well, you mentioned Richard Dawkins being misrepresented, and I don't know if you saw this, but just in the last day or so, a bunch of people were posting this story from The Guardian about Richard Dawkins says fairy tales are bad for kids. And, you know, I've, I've been through this before with Harry Potter, so I know that this yeah. is completely made up, but it's, yeah, it's just it crazy how often this completely ridiculous headline gets resurrected. Well, I think we, what, uh, you, all, you just have to add one word. You just, Richard would say religious fairy tales are bad <laughs> for kids. And the reason is, you know, um, the difference between fairy tales and religious fairy tales is, is we, we tell kids stories to put them to sleep and to get them excited. We tell them about Santa Claus, but we don't expect them to believe it when they grow up. And we also don't suggest it's the truth. Uh, we, you know, we, we, in some sense, fairy tales are to provoke kids to think, and that's what Richard's all about. And you're right. All sorts of, of uh, distortions of his position are presented. And you can see them. You can see some of this. And, and, and same for me. In the movie, uh, there's a discussion with the, the, the Archbishop of, of Sydney, uh, Cardinal Pell, who happily for the Australians has now been moved to Rome because <laughs> he's a very, very, I have to say, dislikable or, or hateful individual. At least he comes across that way. And also, unfortunately, rather ignorant. But throughout the, their debate on TV, Cardinal Pell misrepresents evolution and Richard's views and, and, uh, and misrepresents mine, although it's not in the movie. Um, he, we were supposed, both supposed to be on the program with him, but he said he didn't want to debate two people. And so he took advantage of that to completely misrepresent my viewpoints as well. And uh, it happens all the time. Um, I can't tell you how many times I read uh, on blogs and websites complete distortions about what I say. And, and again, the same complete distortions about what religion Richard says. And, um, but you know, I, I think it's probably 
to be fair, I think it's true of any public figure that you have to get used to being misquoted and misrepresented. Mm-hmm. Now, whenever I bring up these sorts of Richard Dawkins, you know, arguments against religion, people always say, oh, what's, there's no point in even arguing about religion. Nobody ever changes their mind. No rational argument ever convinces anyone to change their minds. And I have to say that most of my friends these days are atheists. Virtually all of them were raised religious, and virtually all of them changed their minds in response to rational arguments that they heard presented to them over the years. So I don't know why it's so, people are so certain that you can never change someone's mind by presenting rational arguments. It's in fact, and and I have lot, and, and since I like to base my quote beliefs on empirical reality, I have lots of evidence that supports your viewpoint. In particular, both Richard and I, although we don't show in the movie so much, both Richard and I uh, get email every single day from people who tell us that our debates, our discussions, and our books have changed their lives. That they have been trapped, and and it's unfortunate. People think there's nothing. You know that religion is innocuous, even though even if religion doesn't say to cut someone's head off if they if they steal something or whatever. But um, it's not innocuous. It causes people pain. We get I get emails all the time from people who say, you know, I was I was in a family and I began to question things and I felt like a bad person and and I was ostracized. And your books and 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 the movie or the debates have shown me that I'm not alone and that and that I can think for myself. And so our discussions do have an impact. But more than that, when we debate some religious fundamentalist or, well, or maybe an apologist or whatever, we don't expect to change the minds of those individuals. They don't listen to what we're saying. That's true. But that's not the reason one does it, if one chooses to do it. It's really for the vast people in the middle. Uh, in England, in the census, they ask people's religious affiliations. and. I think 54% in the last British census, 54% of the people declared they were Christian, which was the lowest ever, although still a majority. But Richard's foundation went and did a subsequent uh, survey of people who had checked the Christian box. And they, they said, well, do you believe in this? Do you believe in the transubstantiation? Do you believe in the virgin birth? Do you believe in this? Do you believe in that? And universally, people would say, no, 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 no. And, and then ultimately, the question was, why did you check the box? And the answer is, well, I like to think of myself as a good person. It, so that people like to say they're religious or Christian, because to not say so is to often be labeled as evil. And we have to change that in our society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, all those people, really, they should be checking Jedi, because they're clearly good guys, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, uh, and uh, moreover, as my friend, my late friend, and the movie is as people will see, is dedicated to Christopher Hitchens, who is a friend of both Richard's and mine, and a, and a remarkable man. Um, as he said, religion poisons everything. It, for though, and as Richard points out adequately, and now I guess I try to, people say, okay, well, religion doesn't, is, has nothing to do with science, but it's a guide for how we should live. Well, it's a pretty darn poor guide for how we should live. If you look at the Old Testament, it's hard to find a more immoral book. And the same is true of of all the, the scriptures of all the world's religions, they're not guides to live. You wouldn't want to live the way they, they say. And if you do, uh, inevitably, it produces violence and hatred. Mm-hmm. All right. And so then another reason we wanted to get you on the show is because you're the author of The Physics of Star Trek. So I didn't want to talk about some science fiction stuff with you as well. Sure. Uh, t- sure. t- t- but tell us, you mentioned that Gus, the director of this Unbelievers film, did a science fiction film with you as a ca- with, uh, in which you had a cameo. Tell us about yeah. that. Well, it's a time travel story. It's a film that they're just finishing up now. And it's a, um, 
It's a film uh, involving a young boy who uh, is interested in science. And uh, there's a scene where he comes to my university and has a chat with me. Um, and I, I haven't seen the whole film. I've done the cameo, and I know they're working on post-production now. Uh, both, I, I, you know, I, I, obviously I've been interested in science fiction. Gus and his brother Luke, who's the director of cinematography, have been fan, big fans of science fiction. And, um, and so it's neat to be in a science fiction movie. There's actually another movie that I've, I've, I've done a cameo in now, which has elements of science fiction in it, called London Fields. It's actually a mainstream Hollywood uh, movie that's coming out with several major stars, but I'm not allowed to, to let you know who. And I and I and I it'll be fascinating to see what what we filmed for a day, what what comes out in that. But um, uh, and by the way, Gus is the other thing I should add is that Gus and Luke's family are extremely religious people. They came from a fundamentalist background. And it's been interesting for their family to see the movie. So they <laughs> they've broken out of that. They've they've experienced the same breakout that they're that in some sense, many people write up to us about. And and I think that's part of what they wanted to celebrate their own their own um, recognition of skepticism and free inquiry and, and, and science. And um, I, I suspect their interest in science fiction probably helped them be interested in science. And I think uh, for many young people, it's that case. It's a chicken and egg case. I don't know whether when I was a kid I read science fiction because it encouraged my interest in science or whether my interest in science encouraged my interest in science fiction. But as, as, as uh, Stephen Hawking says in the foreword for The Physics of Star Trek, Science fiction encourages uh, the imagination, like science, and and uh, and it's a, it's it's a wonderful thing for that for that reason. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, so yeah, so you're obviously a, a Star Trek fan. How about what other science fiction books or movies are you? <laughs> or some of your favorites? Well, I used to read a lot of science fiction when I was younger. I read some of Isaac Asimov. I read I read John Wyndham, a British science fiction author, um, Day of the Triffids and and the Kraken Wakes and 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 and. I think Village of the Damned and stuff. And, Mid Midwich Cuckoos is the book. Yeah, the Midwich, Midwich Cuckoos. That's right. Yeah, the movie got made into Village of the Damned. Um, I, I liked him a lot for some reason, and I read science fiction uh, short stories. Um, I read, you know, Robert Heinlein. I read, I read a number of the major science fiction authors. It's interesting because what happened to me is that as my interest in science began to blossom, and I, as I became a scientist. I stopped reading science fiction as much and read science because, frankly, as I try and say in The Physics of Star Trek, although I, I certainly watched Star Trek every episode when I was a kid because I, I, I liked it. I also watched a lot of TV in general. But truth is stranger than fiction. The real universe is actually far more fascinating than the universe of science fiction. The imagination of the universe far exceeds the human imagination. And therefore, for me, as, as amusing as science fiction is, I usually find it comes up short uh, when compared to the real universe. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned uh, Stephen Hawking, and one of the things I wanted to ask you about is you, you often quote his line about how we know that there's no time travel because we haven't met any time travelers from the future. Um, uh, yeah, although as, I, as, I, as you also probably heard me say, I, he, he changed <laughs> his mind in, in, the, in the preface of the book, and I claim that one of the reasons was that I, I, I told him that they all went back to the 1960s and no one noticed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But in fact, in fact, it is a paradox. Time travel is a probably, I mean, I, I'm probably anticipating your question. And if I'm not, we can change the subject. But for me, time travel is probably the most interesting science fiction concept, because, of course, it brings up all these paradoxes and 
and um, and my favorite episodes of Star Trek and Darth Time Travel, and and the whole paradox of time travel of changing the past is a fascinating one. And the fact, in fact, it's that paradox that's convinced many physicists, including Stephen initially, that time travel in the real universe isn't possible. Mm-hmm. But what we've, but as he recognizes, because he's a scientist, is the universe doesn't give a damn what we care or what we like or what we think is reasonable. Time travel may seem unreasonable, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Uh, just as much of quantum mechanics seems unreasonable, but it happens. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, what I want to ask about is, I don't know if you saw the movie Primer, but it, it presents the idea that you could build a box in which time goes backward. And so an implication of that is that you could travel backward in time, but only back to the point at which the box was constructed. So it's possible that in the future, time travel will be invented, but you won't be, you'll need sort of a receiving station and you can't travel back any farther than that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, actually, there's some relationship of that to science. It's called closed time-like curves. The idea is that in general relativity, time and space are related and uh, intimately as part of a, what we call space-time and both special and general relativity. Now, you can do a circle in space, no problem. I can travel uh, from Australia to the United States. I'll be doing it tomorrow, in fact. Uh, and then I can come back, as I'll do in July. Uh, so there's no problem doing round trips in space. And so if you think about it, why can't you do a round trip in time? And such a round trip in time is exactly what you're talking about, because, of course, you return to the point you began, but not earlier. And um, and these things are called closed time-like curves. And the big question is, in physics, is are closed time-like curves possible? And there's a lot of debate and discussion about that, and there's good reasons for thinking they're potentially not. In, in general relativity, you can create any curve you want, including a closed time-like curve, if you create the kind of space, a designer space, if you wish. But to create a designer space, you need special kinds of energy. And the question is, are those kinds of energy physically realizable? And that's the open question. The, 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 the initial data doesn't, or the initial evidence is, isn't good, but we don't know for certain. But again, in those kind of closed time-like curves, you sort of get around the time travel paradox because you're, you not only do you not return to time before the, the machine, if you wish, was constructed, but you're doomed to repeat the, the mistakes of the past. The, the curve repeats itself. It never changes. And therefore, you, you get around this ultimate paradox, which I mentioned in the book, and which is, which is a famous paradox called the, the grandmother paradox, I call it, which is what happens if you go back in time and kill your grandmother before your mother was born. Well, then your mother is never born, but then you were never born. And then if you were never born, how did you go back in time and kill your grandmother? And so you get around those kind of uh, fascinating paradoxes of, of uh, the Terminator and other things. And, and it makes time travel less interesting, perhaps. But it's still fascinating to know whether even that's possible. Mm-hmm. I heard you say in your lecture on the physics of Star Trek that uh, faster than light travel, like we see in a lot of science fiction movies, right? Star Wars, Star Trek, uh, necessarily involves time travel. And I was just wondering, could you talk about that? And, and is, a, is a science fiction author who chooses to have faster than light travel, like, like hyperspace jumps in Star Wars, obligated to also have time travel be um, something those characters can do? In principle, of course, you're entitled to invent anything you want. <laughs> and so, I mean, the operative word in science fiction, we should say, and uh, several science fiction authors have agreed with me on this, the operative word is not science, it's fiction. You have to tell a good story 
and you have to get people to suspend disbelief in a way that's plausible. So, and, and then you can do whatever you want. It's not, science fiction doesn't have to be accurate. Um, it has to be interesting. But uh, in general, it is true that if you were to create something like wormholes, as I talk about in the book, um, wormholes allowed, of course, Jodie Foster and contact to go from one place to another. And there's one of my favorite wormhole in Star Trek and in lots of, it's a good way to travel through space in principle faster than light because you take a shortcut. You go from one point to another by making a new tunnel, if you wish, that connects those two points that's much shorter than, the, than going through the background space. And it's a good idea if you can do it. But as, as has been shown, if you were to create such a tunnel, you could automatically, you would have to be, have a time machine. Now, it's also true that if you could travel literally faster than light, which by the way, you can't. You can't travel faster than light through space. But if you could, then time would go backwards. And uh, in fact, it's, it's the reason, as I talk about in one of my other books, why antiparticles exist, as Richard Feynman first discussed. And, and the antiparticles are the, uh, are, for every particle in nature, there's a particle of an equal mass and opposite charge. And it turns out that we can show that antiparticles exist because essentially they behave like particles going backwards in time. And a, and a, and a negative charge going backward in time is equivalent to a positive charge going forward in time. And so if you could travel faster than light, relativity tells you that you'd be going backwards in time. We, we, there, in fact, you'd be, we'd search for such particles. They're called tachyons. Particles that are doomed to ever travel faster than light would literally be traveling backwards in time. And, and although there's no sensible theory that, that incorporates such objects, we, you know, physicists recognize they shouldn't be guided by theory all the time, that they should be guided by experiment. And, uh, and so people have looked for tachyons and, of course, never seen them. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and I, I definitely understand that, if you're that you can't have a velocity through space that's faster than light. But if you were to take some sort of shortcut through space, you know, folding space or going through a wormhole or something, you would still be traveling through time Yeah, I, anyway, can, I, right? I can explain to you how to do it. It's pretty simple. <laughs> At least I think it is. <laughs> uh, the, um, you, if you have a wormhole... Then one, one mouth of the wormhole is anchored in one place in space, and the other mouth is anchored in another place in space. And you go through the wormhole and you come out somewhere else. But one end of the wormhole can be moving through space, say, at near the speed of light. Okay, let's say it does a big circle in space at near the speed of light, five light years around. Well, that end of the wormhole is traveling through space. Einstein's special theory of relativity tells us that an observer sitting at that end of the wormhole their clocks would be moving slower than the clocks of the observer at the other end of the wormhole who's at rest in space, okay? So one observer may see the other observer far away at that end of the wormhole going on a ride five light years around, and if they're traveling near the speed of light, it will take them almost five years to do that. Fine. But the observer who's on the mouth of the wormhole that's moving, their clocks are traveling slowly, and that whole trip may just take two weeks. So that observer is now five years minus two weeks behind the observer at the other end of the wormhole. So if you go through the wormhole, you come out five years minus two weeks earlier. And so a wormhole is a time machine. Cool. Okay, so then another Star Trek uh, thing I want to ask you about is you say in your lecture that the transporter is impossible because A, because of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, and B, because the amount of data... Um, you know, to record every atom in the human body is just beyond any imaginable recording device. Um, mm -hmm. 
And we, we interviewed Brian Green, uh, I don't know, a number of episodes back now. And he was saying that this, uh, this quantum, um, quantum teleportation that takes advantage of quantum entanglement has the potential to possibly in the future get around Heisenberg's uncertainty principle for teleporting uh -huh. objects. Brian, Brian should know better. It, do, it doesn't ever get around Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. What it does is exploit the weird behavior of quantum mechanical systems to allow, if you very specially prepare a quantum mechanical system, you can do what looks like teleportation. But the whole point is we are not. We, you and me, are not specially prepared quantum mechanical systems. We are not. One of the ways to find that out is if I were to take an electron and throw it at the wall of the room I'm sitting in, every now and then it would, it would literally tunnel through the wall and suddenly appear on the other side of the wall. Okay? You can, if you wish, from now till the end of time, run towards that wall with your head forward and, and bang into the wall. And I guarantee you that you will never end up on the other side of the wall unless you make, break a hole <laughs> in the process. And we are not specially prepared quantum mechanical systems. And therefore, we can't take advantage of the weird quantum mechanical properties that you can for an individual photon or even for an, maybe an atom or a molecule. We can use that for, for maybe things like quantum computing, but it's not going to allow us to transport a human being, unfortunately. And I wish it. I wish it would, believe me. As a, The transporter is the reason I wrote the book. Uh, I found it fascinating. And also, since unfortunately I, I fly all the time, I'd love to avoid that <laughs> and, and figure a way to avoid the security lines at airports. Mm. Well, I mean, speaking of quantum mechanics, I heard you say something years ago that really stuck with me. And you said that people should never use the phrase quantum mechanics and consciousness in the same sentence. Uh, people shouldn't. Shouldn't, is, is yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I know you shouldn't. It's all right to use in the same sense if you say that that consciousness uh, um, has well, nothing to do with. Well, I was going to say it has nothing to do with quantum mechanics. That's not true in a sense because quantum mechanics is the basis of all physical phenomena. But people who argue that you can use quantum coherence to understand consciousness, um, they, they they it's fun words and they use it unfortunately to argue for all sorts of new age garbage but the brain your your brain is a complicated system with lots of particles interacting and it's unlikely to expect that quantum coherence is responsible for the nature of consciousness because quantum coherence gets destroyed in, in in most physical systems because of the many particles interacting in a in a in a small fraction of a second and so um, um although of course quantum mechanics at some level underlies the atomic interactions and chemical interactions that are taking place that determine memory and, and in fact, biochemistry. Uh, we're not sophisticated, coherent quantum mechanical machines, I expect. But moreover, anyone who makes a claim about consciousness is probably lying because we don't understand the nature of consciousness. <laughs> and so there are lots of people who try and make their living by, by being hucksters about, in particular, there are those people, those awful people who uh, who promote things like that silly nonsensical book the secret that suggests that quantum mechanics if you think about it it will happen if you want it it will happen that somehow your desires can affect the universe and that is the worst garbage the worst misrepresentation of science mechanics it's fraudulent it's a lie and people should ignore those people um and moreover uh ridicule them hmm. 
All right, so we're running short on time, unfortunately. I have a couple more questions I want to get through quickly. But um, one thing I was wondering about is you've talked about how we're just not evolved to think about quantum mechanics, right? Because we evolved on the savanna in Africa. And I was wondering if you could upgrade your brain with cybernetics or something, what um, abilities would be useful for you in science? For example, uh, being able to actually conceptualize more than three spatial dimensions, things like that. <laughs> well, uh, conceptualizing more than three spatial dimensions would be great. Probably you'd have to be a four-dimensional computer to do that. But anyway, uh, but who knows? Uh, the other thing would be to have an intuitive understanding of quantum mechanics. Richard Feynman was fascinated with quantum computing. One of the, he was one of the first people to talk about using quantum mechanical principles to create new kinds of computers, as people are actually doing nowadays, or trying to do. But he wanted to do it so he could understand quantum mechanics better. And he, you might say very few people understood quantum mechanics as well as him, but he recognized that because he was a classical being, he could never really un intuitively understand the quantum phenomena. And so he wanted to create a quantum computer to sort of see those quantum phenomena more explicitly. And so, of course, being able to intuitively experience quantum mechanical phenomena by maybe being a quantum computer might give you a whole new appreciation of physics. And, and in fact, you know, maybe in the future, computers will become conscious. I don't see any reason why they couldn't. And as my friend Frank Wolchek, who's another physicist, a Nobel Prize winning physicist, has said he, they, what really interests him is, would those computers do physics differently than we, than we would? And it's a fascinating question, and it'd be interesting to know. Hmm. Okay, so given the name of the show, obviously we're big Douglas Adams fans, and Douglas Adams yeah. wrote a sequel to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy called The Restaurant at the End of the Universe. Now, Which is the title of one of the chapters of one of my books, by the way, but anyway. Oh, excellent. Well, yeah, okay, so, so <laughs> if you... Um, just based on the latest cosmological knowledge, if you were to build a restaurant at the end of the universe inside a time-space bubble, when would that be, and what would it, what, what would the view be like from the from the restaurant? <laughs> well, uh, unfortunately, as I described, I think in the universe for nothing, the future is miserable in many ways, and the universe is not likely to end with a bang, but rather a whimper, a long, boring whimper. And what would happen if you were at the restaurant at the end of the universe? It, is you'd be very lonely because uh, as our universe remarkably is expanding faster and faster, one of the great discoveries of the last 20 years is that the expansion of the universe is accelerating. Eventually, all the galaxies that we now see will be moving away from us faster than light. That's allowed. You're, they're not moving through space faster than light. Space is carrying them away faster than light. And they'll eventually disappear in a time frame of about 2 trillion years all the galaxies we now see will have disappeared and our Milky Way galaxy will be alone and lonely. And all the evidence of the Big Bang will have disappeared for physicists who evolve on planets around stars in the, in the far future. They'll look out and all of the evidence that we now have there, that there was once a Big Bang will have disappeared. And of ultimately, those stars will, in our galaxy or in the, what, what, is, what will become the Milky Way galaxy, because we'll will collide with several other galaxies in the interim. Those stars will burn out and the universe will become cold, dark, and empty. And that's the future. As my friend, my late friend Christopher Hitchens used to say when I talked about nothing and I explained that to him, he used to say, you know, nothing's heading towards us about as fast as can be. And if you ask the question, why is there something rather than nothing? One of the good answers that he proposed was, just wait, there won't be <laughs> 
Okay, so so say the uh, owners of the restaurant at the end of the universe want to open up a new franchise location at the beginning of the universe. What would that view look like? Well, um, they <laughs> they would have a hard time doing it because all evidence of the beginning of the universe would have disappeared. Uh, basically, all evidence of the hot big bang would have disappeared, and they won't wouldn't even have access to the information that it happened, much less access to the beginning of time. That is, of course, unless they built a time machine. No, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm saying if they had a time, you know, if they had a time machine. They had a time machine? Well, if they had a time machine, they would not want to create a, such a franchise because the <laughs> beginning of the universe was an equally miserable place in a very different sense. It was unbelievably dense. Uh, in fact, if you take the things back uh, beyond the domain of validity, it was an, a single point. But, but we, we talk about with a straight face a universe, and I wrote a book about the life history of an atom, and it begins when our entire visible universe now, which contains 100 billion galaxies, each of which contains 100 billion stars, was contained in a region smaller than the size of an atom. You have to imagine stuffing all of that energy and matter into such a small region. It was incredibly hot, incredibly dense, and almost unfathomably so. It's, it's really difficult, if not impossible, to picture everything that's now in our universe in such a region but it once was and what's really neat is we can test that we can test those ideas and we're doing it by looking out at the universe today and seeing remnants of that time and that's what makes science so fascinating hmm. okay and so then you've you've said that it's possible that our universe is just one universe within a multiverse of universes sort of bubbling out of nothingness and coming into existence now does that multi is that multiverse eternal or did it itself have a beginning at some point well, the answer is we don't know. Um, we, we, it, it's certainly eternal into the future, uh, if our ideas of inflation are correct. But we don't know. And it could be that time began when, well, you know, in space and time are, are tied together. So as far as our universe is concerned, there may have been no before. Because time itself may be a product of, of the creation of our universe. Because time and space are tied together in general relativity. And and time may have come into existence when space comes to existence. We don't know these questions, nor do I claim to know those questions, despite the fact that some people, uh, uh, largely ignorant of my book, claim that I make, <laughs> make such. Um, we don't know the answers, and that's, we're trying to find out the answers, and that's it, fascinating. And uh, I guess the answer is stay tuned. Hmm. Um, okay, and so then you mentioned that I mean, a lot of your, um, a lot of the breakthroughs in high energy physics recently came out of the, uh, such as the discovery of the Higgs boson, came out of the, um, uh, the Large Hadron Collider, and I heard you say, you know, and and this now the the European scientists uh, are able to do all this stuff that American scientists were not able to do because of the canceling of the superconducting super collider, mm -hmm. um, and I just I thought it was funny you said that the cost of the super superconducting super collider was equivalent to one day's worth of the air conditioning bill for Iraq. Oh, one week, I think. Oh, one week, okay. <laughs> yeah, and and the question is, which is more useful? And I think, in retrospect, no one who's sensible could argue that um, that learning about our origins was not more useful than destabilizing a country that we for no for no reason, even if the country we had a dictator. But we don't. We probably don't want to get into politics. <laughs> but uh, but I think it's sad to think that some people claimed the United States could not afford what was then a $6 billion machine. Um, $6 billion sounds like a lot of money, 
but over 20 years, it's not by comparison. It's less, you know, it's less than the cost of a, probably an aircraft carrier. And uh, if we are so impoverished that we as a society can have to stop asking questions about our origins or the beginning of the universe and the end of the universe, because we don't have the money, then, then we are really, really, truly impoverished. And I don't think we're there. Mm. And then another thing that's really struck me in recent years is that there was this presidential debate on religion, uh, sort of moderated by Rick Warren. Yeah. And some uh, people I know were trying to get together a presidential science debate. And well, I'm actually, I'm one of the people, you may not yeah. know, but I'm one of the people who, who, who helped originate that effort. Yes, go on. Sorry. Yeah, and I mean, I just think it's it's wildly inappropriate for this religious forum in a country with a constitutionally mandated separation of church and state. I just wonder, like, uh, what's the prospects for the future? Do you think there will be a presidential science debate? No, uh, <laughs> no, because it, it it's not a, you know, I mean, we managed, I'm very happy with what we managed to do. We managed to get both candidates in the last two elections to answer 14 questions, not 14, not science quiz. We didn't ask them what's the seventh decimal of pi. <laughs> We asked them about science policy because, of course, all the major questions, that's what's so ridiculous about a debate about religion or faith, because all the major questions that are going to face any president in the next decade, about, from, from the environment to national security to health to energy, they're all, they all have a scientific basis. And, and, and science policy, ultimately, is vital to all of the major political decisions that are going to take place. But, you know, I think the problem is that People are, there isn't a science constituency, if you want. There are people who, who vote single issue on abortion or gay marriage, perhaps. But, you know, scientists can say, well, you know, we disagree with the president. Um, their policies in this area are bad. But usually that single issues alone is not enough to affect uh, their vote, let's say. And I think, um, I think as long as politicians realize that people who are fascinated by reality are not single issue voters, they're not going to cater to them as they do to religious fundamentalists. And that's an unfortunate situation. Mm -hmm. All right. So we're all out of time here. So just finally, um, are there any other books, movies, uh, anything else you want to mention? <laughs> well, I'm writing one, but it won't be out for another, another uh, few months. And uh, no, I think uh, I'm hoping that uh, I'll, just, I'll just plug again the unbelievers. I, I'm biased, of course, but I, I hope people enjoy it. I think it's an enjoyable film as well as a uh, thought-provoking one, and I hope people agree. And, um, and stay tuned for, if that's successful, we'll be producing other ones on science. And, and I'm hoping we can reach a broader audience. Uh, and of course, that doesn't stop the writing. And I'm looking forward to my next book. With, um, and uh, maybe in a, in a few years, we'll have an interview about that. <laughs> All right. Looking forward to it. So Lawrence Krauss, thanks so much for joining us. Take care. Bye-bye. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Lawrence Krauss for joining us on the show. And for our panel today, we'll be discussing being an atheist writer. And I'm joined by two guest geeks. So first up, we've got Tobias Bakel making his sixth appearance on the show. He's the author of the Xenowealth series of space adventure novels and the New York Times bestselling Halo novel, The Cold Protocol. His latest book is Hurricane Fever, a sequel to his 2012 eco-thriller Arctic Rising. So Toby, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. And also joining us today is James Morrow. The Washington Post calls him the most provocative satiric voice in science fiction, and the Denver Post has hailed him as Christianity's Salman Rushdie, only funnier and more sacrilegious. His books include Towing Jehovah, Only Begotten Daughter, and Bible Stories for Adults, and his latest book is called The Madonna and the Starship. So Jim, welcome to the show. 
Thank you, Dave. It's great to be here among fellow geeks. <laughs> All right. And so the current year is 2014, which means that exactly 15 years ago this summer, Toby and I were students at the Clarion Writers Workshop, and Jim was our week one instructor. And so, Jim, I don't know if you know this, but actually the main reason I wanted to go to Clarion that summer was because I had been reading your books and I saw that you were going to be there and I wanted to meet you. Well, that's very gratifying. And so obviously that ended up being a big, uh, uh, big decision in my life. Uh, for example, if I hadn't gone that summer, I wouldn't have met Toby. And then Geek's Guide to the Galaxy would have been immeasurably impoverished. So, <laughs> so I just really want to thank you, Jim, first of all, for just being so awesome that it motivated me to go to Clarion that summer. Well, you're very welcome. For you, awesomeness will be my default. <laughs> um, and so, Jim, I know it was, it was 15 years ago, but do you uh, have any recollections from that week? Do you uh, remember what Toby and I were like as fresh-faced college kids? <laughs> uh, I, I think I had you fingered for, for a couple of young writers who had a future in this business. Now, you were with uh, – yeah, this, is, this maybe sounds gratuitous, but I really uh, – you were you were among the the handful that where I said to myself, uh, "They've got it. Uh, they're gonna they're gonna make it." All right, cool, Toby. Do you have any uh, any recollections of Jim or me from uh, fifteen years ago? Fifteen years ago, it's kind of wild to think that it's been <laughs> a decade and a half, and that we're still plugging away in the field. That's uh, it. Doesn't seem like that long ago, does it? No. It just. Uh, yeah, it seems like yesterday I showed up in a, a half-rusted-out, broken-down Cavalier and uh, with $5 in my ashtray and no idea how I was going to even eat. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, um, I wish I'd known that. We would have, it was, <laughs> I would have brought food to the, <laughs> to the workshop. Oh, they were, they were really cool. I got a, a scholarship. But I literally showed up with five dollars in an ashtray because I had uh, <laughs> you know, paid everything to get there and, and showed up and you know, was 20 years old and a junior in college and just had no idea what, what was going to happen next, but I was really excited to be there. I guess it paid off. Uh, I can't say for sure that I predicted you'd become a New York Times bestselling author, but I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, if, if uh, people want to listen to the episode uh, where we interviewed Werner Vinci, I don't remember what episode it was now, but Toby came on after that. And he tells the whole story, and it's a great story. And so if you haven't heard it, I, I definitely recommend going and checking it out. There's actually a lot of really good story, a lot of good Toby stories uh, in that episode. Um, but all right, let's jump into our, uh, our panel topic for today, which is being an atheist writer. Um, so Jim, why don't you just start out and tell us um, just sort of what was your religious upbringing and how did you become an atheist? Well, uh, when I was a kid growing up in the, in the Philadelphia suburbs, my parents took me to a kind of white bread, white person's uh, Presbyterian church in the town of uh, Willow Grove. I think mom and dad had a kind of vaccination theory of religion, you know, inoculate the kid with a little bit of the stuff. Uh, and then he'll be immune to, uh, to zealotry. He won't come home one day and announce that that he's decided to to join a monastery, um, you know. When when you're a uh, a white bread uh, Philadelphia suburban Presbyterian, there's really not much to lapse from. People sometimes assume that that my writing project is about recovering from having been assaulted by a nun, or the <laughs> ruler, or something like that. Uh, but it, I, that that said, I did have a kind of road 
to Damascus experience in which my um, my sort of bland theism disappeared, not overnight, but it was a, a function of encountering uh, world literature. I had this amazing 10th grade world literature class at Abington High School uh, taught by um, the amazing James Giordano. And we read, we read the great uh, skeptics. We read uh, uh, novelists and poets for whom received wisdom was by definition insufficient. We read uh, Camus' The Stranger and Voltaire's Candide. We read Kafka's The Trial, Flaubert's Madame Bovary, uh, books by, if not atheists, certainly uh, honest doubters, anguished skeptics. And those books just spoke to me. So I call it my inverse road to Damascus. Um, this, this sounds a little bit mystical, but it's not really. It, it just, the voice of Voltaire telling me to cross-examine uh, uh, received wisdom uh, is, is, is a voice I've never gotten out of my head. Maybe it was like the road from Damascus. It's like yeah, a two-way road. A, <laughs> that, that would be a, a, a better way to put it. So, uh, you know, I haven't, haven't looked back. Uh, the skeptical, atheist, scientific, humanist way of being in the world continues to enrich uh, every moment of my day. And it'd be hard for me to imagine abandoning it, but maybe God has other plans for me. <laughs> uh, and how about Toby? Uh, what was your religious upbringing like? Uh, my religious upbringing was primarily Anglican. I grew up in Grenada, which is formerly, you know, English English uh, territory and became its own country in 1979, right when I was born, in fact. And the Anglican church there is still very strong. And for those of you who are not uh, of the Commonwealth, if you're um, American, that would be Episcopalian. And that's sort of, you know, very similar in some ways to Catholic upbringing, which is in terms of the uh, the theology being, you know, Old Testament is a fable, um, which was sort of the best that the desert tribes could do at the time. And then the New Testament is the, is the stuff that was really, really believed. Um, and my educational upbringing was very European in terms of um, being taught you know, evolution. And in particular, um, we had something that I don't uh, see many of my friends in the States experiencing, which was that I took a class on religion, which featured all these, all the different religions when I was in school. And that was, that was interesting to me because we did take biblical literature while I was in public school, or the British equivalent of public school. And that was kind of fantastic. Um, my own personal journey, though, was more influenced by the fact that I started reading books around six or seven years old, just whole novels. I just started consuming them. And, you know, what I started consuming was just anything I could get my hands on, which included the Bible. And it left me with a lot of questions that adults did not like to answer. Um <laughs> And, you know, sort of getting shut down and yelled at by people for kind of asking questions about behavior or things that people said it said that it didn't, things like that just start to add up. Um, as well as the fact that I got into loving science fiction fairly early, which exposed me to a broad range of perspectives. So I still remember one of the first novels I read was Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End. And one of the main conceits in it is that a race of aliens that looks like demons 
comes to Earth, and they they hide themselves for a long time because it turns out that all of our mythology about demons comes from a botched first encounter back in prehistory. And, you know, uh, between that and between reading a lot of other mythology, I was reading Greek and Norse mythology a lot as a kid because it fascinated me. And that led me into just picking up any book on mythology that I encountered. You know, anything I could find fascinated me. And, And if you read enough books in mythology, you start to just sort of at one point, the question just kind of pops into your head, even as a young kid, like, well, at some point, everyone believed this was true in their perspective and their unique point in time. You know, what if, you know, my the particular religion that's all around me is is that fable and myth as well? Because certainly it has a lot of the same, you know, literary tricks, a lot of the same methods, and it's, it's very similar. And I started to read a lot of biblical literature and um, – like uh, scholarly research and wherever I could find it. And, you know, came away from that, just sort of uh, eventually just sliding all the way into general atheism. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and Toby, I mean, you talk about how science fiction in particular kind of uh, inclines you toward atheism. And, and that was, I mean, I was not raised religious, so I, I've always been an atheist. And just as a kid, uh, I, I think I was drawn to science fiction because it just seemed like this little corner of sanity in American pop culture. You know, um, authors like As Asimov and Douglas Adams were very outspokenly atheistic. Um, I don't know, Jim, what do you think about that? Did you um, sort of, did you read science fiction growing up and did you associate it with atheism uh, when you started getting into it? I wasn't uh, a fan exactly. So, my trajectory into the genre was, was, not, was not typical. Uh, but I certainly read uh, some canonical works, especially H.G. Wells, whose uh, religious views were skeptical, I would say, to, to say the least. And certainly following Wells for many generations, uh, atheism was the default mode of, of science fiction, I would say, um, which, which makes sense. I mean, science is, after all, uh, concerned exclusively with the material universe. Um, it's, it's concerned with a, a realm in which there are no gods, so it would tend to attract people for whom the the cosmos is sufficient. Uh, that's kind of a weird remark I just made. The, the cosmos is sufficient. Well, I, <laughs> I should hope so. <laughs> but uh, yes, Asimov was famously atheistic uh, with uh, Arthur Clarke, who I also read uh, as, a, as a young reader. Uh, we have somebody who's uh, a religious skeptic but, a, but a, a writer who's finding a kind of transcendence or numinosity through his SF thought experiments. But I think that's another reason to, to argue that, that science fiction is a good place for atheists, because the world picture painted by science, it seems to me, is, is, is far more uh, beautiful and awe-inspiring than pretty much anything we find in scripture or revelation uh, with Maybe the possible exception of the of the book of Job and a couple of pieces of of Revelation. Uh, to, to be sure, there have there have been conspicuous believers uh, dipping into the the genre all along. C.S. Lewis, arguably Ray Bradbury, certainly Orson Scott Card, and Gene Wolfe, and Michael Bishop, and and Tim Powers. But I would imagine that. Uh, Toby's story is, and your story are are typical, where where we haven't yet had any encounter to persuade us uh, that the world is being supervised by an omnibenevolent, omnicompetent, omniscient deity. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, actually, the last time we discussed, uh, we, uh, back uh, when I interviewed Richard Dawkins, we did a panel on atheism and science fiction. And I talked about a panel I had seen years ago uh, about this, about the subject of sort of atheism and religion and science fiction. And Jim, you're actually on that panel. uh, And you said something that's stuck with me all these years is people were talking about consensus reality, Mm -hmm. uh, just sort of this idea that everybody, you know, that sane people generally all agree on what reality is. And you said, I don't think we live in a world with consensus reality. I think we live in this consensus fantasy where... (laughs) You know, everybody, you know, just sane, average people that you meet, just by by default, just believe things that have no empirical support for them whatsoever. I, I, w- I, wish, I uh, wish I could say I remember that. This was a, a panel, a science fiction panel? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember what convention it was at. Uh, it might have been at, at, uh, at one of the world cons. Um, Jim McDonald was also on the panel. Well, I do like that term, consensus fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> I think I will start to, to recycle it. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I admire Dawkins, and I think maybe I especially love him for the enemies he makes. Uh, uh, I mean, this new atheism, uh, not only Dawkins, of course, but uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens and, and Sam Harris, uh, Daniel Dennett, it's just gotten everybody bent out of shape. And I, I think of Dawkins as rather like the little boy who notices that the emperor is naked in Hans Christian Andersen's fable. Uh, and, and Dawkins' critics, they seem to be saying, hmm, hmm, uh, well, that little boy, you know, that little boy, he's, he's pretty ugly. You know? <laughs> he's kind of pockmarked. And I don't think his parents ever got married. And, you know, meanwhile, I've got the little boy or We've got Dawkins saying, but the emperor's naked. The emperor's naked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And besides, say the critics, oh, you know, but the emperor isn't really naked. I mean, there's this kind of pocket of oxygen around him, right? <laughs> and uh, and he's a pretty hairy, a pretty hairy emperor now that when it comes down to it. So, you know, that that seems to be uh, uh, the, the, the uh, idiom in which we're addressing uh, the, these these terribly annoying uppity atheists and uh you know sure there's a critique one can make maybe what they're tilting with is a caricature of belief rather than the lived experience of churchgoers uh but they've certainly created a kind of dialectic that i find to be very healthy and and long overdue mm-hmm. actually toby you know um jim mentioned orson scott card and one thing i really wanted to ask you about was uh, shortly after we were at Clarion, actually, back in 2002, uh, uh, Orson Scott Card reviewed um, Philip Pullman's Dark Materials trilogy. And okay. I don't know if you remember this. And you wrote a response to it um, that at the time just struck me as being very, very brave and uh, just really well done. Um, I don't know if you remember. Do you remember this at all? I wish I could remember it. Thank you very <laughs> much. I'm flattered. But <laughs> um, no, I don't remember it at all. Okay. <laughs> I really liked the Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials uh, trilogy because it was, you know, one of the things I enjoy about science fiction is the is the sort of uh, freedom to to sort of try these experiments and and these thought experiments and it was a a genre that's I felt that open to many different kinds of things and so you know I just uh, I'm I'm really uh, glad that 
it was a genre that I found a welcoming and sort of a open space for for ideas. So I do tend to occasionally, you know, try to stand up for work that I think was doing something interesting. Mm -hmm. I guess, uh, you know, sort of what in in this um, article, Orson Scott Card had written, he had mentioned in passing that um, Hitler was an atheist. Oh, gosh, yes, that argument. And, uh, and, and you wrote this post responding to it, I mean, really just completely demolishing it. Um, but but what really struck me was good, good for you, Toby. <laughs> but yeah, he had all sorts of uh, links and stuff. I mean, it was really impressive. Uh, I actually just went back and reread it last night. But um, uh, but what really struck me, Toby, that, that I want to get talk to you about is just how like what what's it like um, sort of coming out as an atheist and being um, you know like responding to such a well known author and stuff as a twenty two year old you know newcomer. I, I think probably now it would be more of a grenade than it was back then. I don't think as many people were paying attention to it. <laughs> so it probably was safer at 22 to, to you know, mount a strong defense than it is now. I'd probably get a lot more angry email and clicks and so forth and so on. But, I mean, even then, uh, yeah, there was a lot of – you get a lot of flack. Um, you know, I don't, I don't really talk that often about being an atheist in science fiction or an atheist as a writer. But, I mean, obviously I am – you know, an atheist and not religious. And so like you, you, you mention and you put out stuff every once in a while when you see something that you think is fairly ridiculous in terms of its, its dogma. And you do get kind of this pushback where people were like, Oh, but you're a nice guy. You can't be an atheist. Why are you saying these horrible things? Um, and you I mean, get this, you, you find that people have a lot of, of baggage that they bring to stuff that in terms of how they interact with you and, and their hopes and their dreams, because most people, they they read something or they follow you and they want you to be just kind of like them and it makes them sort of a little discomfited when you are not you know and so there are you know traditionally since uh, America is and most of my audience is American right now since America is primar- primarily a, a more religious nation a lot of my readers are of course religious and so some of them who are not aware of the fact that I'm non-religious will come across the fact for the first time and get get sort of a little bit upset and and try to engage, you know, with a, a set of arguments or assumptions that they have that you you may have already considered. And one of one of the big, you know, my my problem with Orson Scott Card isn't that he's super religious, it's that he makes a lot of horrible, horrible arguments and trots out a lot of really worn um a lot of really worn out uh, sort of themes or or old arguments and one of those is like hitler is an atheist therefore you know that shows that atheism is bad and it'll lead to bad things and it is it's it's just a bad argument i i think uh i don't want to leave uh hitler as atheist on on the table uh because <laughs> it's, it's worth remembering that his whole project this whole fantasy of the thousand year reich is shot through with a with uh, certainty, certainty. It's shot through with a kind of supernatural arrogance. Um, it doesn't have anything to do with the Enlightenment, uh, which gives us this, these great gifts, not only of reason and arguably atheism, but also doubt. You know, I think, I think atheism is about skepticism. And Hitler was probably the least skeptical person who ever lived. And it's also always worth remembering that you know, the evil seeds of Nazism fell on soil made very fertile by 2,000 years of Christian anti-Semitism. So 
you cannot equate the absolute certainty, the absolute disinterest in any sort of post-enlightenment conversation uh, among the architects of the Third Reich. Uh, you, you cannot say that's continuous with atheism. It's continuous with its opposite. It's just, it's ridiculous to say that, uh, you know, he created an atheist sort of society when people marched into battle with the words like, God is with us on their belt buckles. It's, <laughs> you know, like, I'm trying to yeah. think of how many atheists put that on their belt buckles, <laughs> you know, like, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very common thing to do to, to sort of, you know, it's, it's a piece of rhetoric, and it's used by, you know, some believers to sort of, uh, cloud the minds of other people and and it, it's an easy way to whip up hatred and it's cheap and i really expect more of of thinkers i think we also are probably tired of hearing the argument that faith is its own sort of uh or that that atheism rather is its own sort of faith it, it's a position that i don't want to pick on orson scott card anymore today because we hear this from <laughs> lots of people Sure. Lots of people, oh, you atheists, you have your own church. Well, no, no, that, that's uh, an irrational position to take. It can't be supported philosophically. Uh, a reasoned decision not to buy into somebody else's revelation is, is not itself a revelation. Uh, you don't need the clouds to part and an angel to blow a trumpet in your ear before you decide that God is a hoax or astrology is bankrupt or Ouija boards are malarkey. You just, you just don't need that. And it's, it's disingenuous, as you said, Toby, to reason that way. Okay. I mean, so Jim, you mentioned that, um, that it's the science fiction is this sort of very hospitable place for science and, uh, inhospitable in a way for religion. But you um, are classified as a science fiction author, and that's where your books appear, but they're just bursting with religious characters and images and things. Um, why do you think that, you've, that um, the sort of science fiction publishing world has become such a good home for you to explore all these religious ideas? Well, uh, when you join the science fiction community, you're handed um, this wonderful toolkit uh, and it's full of robots and time machines and alternative realities. Uh, so I would say, well, maybe I don't exactly write science fiction, but I certainly use those tools to perform the, the uh, theological experiments, the theological thought experiments that so fascinate me. Um, and I certainly wouldn't want to be shelved in the religious section of, <laughs> of a bookstore. You know, I, I, I usually run screaming from that quadrant of, of Barnes and Noble. Um, you know, it, science fiction just invites you to have the broadest possible perspective on uh, the, the mystery of it all. You know, we're, we're, we're thrown into the world, as Heidegger says. Well, Heidegger's Nazism, that's another day. But, <laughs> but, 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 but I always love that, um, that image from Heidegger. We're thrown here. You know, we don't know what we're doing here, but um, I think it behooves us in our bewilderment to try to ask really good questions and to be as curious as we possibly can. And the critique, uh, one of the many critiques I have of religion is it seems to shut down curiosity and it invites us to settle for very bad answers to those, to those fundamental mysteries. Um, so I, I just see it as this wonderful mad scientist laboratory, the, the SF genre. Uh -huh. um, 
Sure, I suppose I'm foreclosing on a larger uh, readership by getting identified as a genre author. And a number of my books have been published as mainstream, uh, but they've always depended on enthusiasm from the science fiction community to uh, to turn a, a profit. Uh, was was there some Jim? Was there some uh, inciting incident or that that caused you to start writing? Say, I think Only Begotten Daughter was maybe the first of the really explicitly religious um, books. What, like what? How did that come about? And you know, I would trace it to uh, to the feminist movement of the early seventies. I just woke up one day and said, you know, it's a big problem <laughs> that the the all of the major monotheistic religions uh, they rank order the genders, right? <laughs> they rank order them, you know, and men win. And as that old Yiddish proverb goes, you know, the the most a woman can hope for is to be her husband's footstool in heaven. And I said, wow, what if there was um, a female Jesus? What if there was a second coming, but with the uh, gender expectation flipped? And so Only Begotten Daughter becomes the the saga of, of Julie Katz, whose problems include the fact that she's Jesus Christ's divine half-sister, but as a, as a deity marooned in the, in the 20th century, uh, when the Christian consensus has been lost, uh, she, doesn't, she doesn't have an agenda. But I just wanted to get away from that. You know, well, all the Hebrew prophets are guys, and God is a guy, and Jesus is a guy, and the Virgin Mary is a big problem when you consider what a schizoid role model that is for women. You know, you're supposed to be a mother, and you're also supposed to be a virgin. So I wanted, I thought there was a lot to do with that zone, and, and God knows there still is work to do uh, with the whole uh, feminist insight. You know, I, I often... Uh, uh, I, I find it very reliable to ask the question when we want to know how moral an, a behavior is, how moral a society is, how moral a particular strain of faith is. The question to ask is, how does it treat women? Hmm. And I mean, you mentioned earlier, Jim, the the sort of rise of organized secularism and the new atheists and stuff. Have you have you witnessed uh, any sort of um, shift in how your books are received uh, in the broader culture as a result of that kind of uh, that that sort of shift? Uh, I'm I'm getting some attraction in the in the outside world. I'm just back from uh, the first conference ever uh, sponsored by the International. Society for Heresy Studies, of which I was a founder, along with uh, Bernard Schweitzer and uh, of uh, Long Island University and uh, Greg Erickson of NYU, Rebecca Goldstein, the uh, wonderful philosopher, novelist James Wood, the celebrated book critic, and um, the uh, the International Society for Heresy Studies uh, is at one level. Um, not a repose to the new atheists, but, but, but an argument that these, uh, these theological questions are so complex, we must not dismiss churches with sneering. On the other hand, we must not defer to religion. Uh, and uh, there's, there has been, I think maybe until the arrival, until secular hum humanism got this kind of present traction, there's a tendency to always strain literature through uh, confession through faith. Oh, uh, Dostoevsky was such a pious man. Well, no, he wasn't. He was racked by doubt. And he gives us that amazing character of Ivan Karamazov, who, 
when Ervan Karamazov is on stage, uh, is speaking for Dostoevsky, as far as I'm concerned. That's what that novel is such a marvelous thought experiment. Um, uh, Melville, while not uh, uh, absolutely an atheist, uh, famously writes to Nathaniel Hawthorne, his good friend, after, after he, Melville, finishes penning Moby Dick, he tells Hawthorne, I've written a wicked book and feel spotless as the lamb. And Moby Dick is clearly about um, a, a person, an Ahab, a Job figure who has this quarrel with God, who, who will not accept the cosmic status quo. Um, but that's rarely, uh, that's rarely celebrated in Melville criticism. So that's why us heretics have gotten together. Uh, and we, we're now going to have our own uh, journal and our own newsletter and more conferences, I hope. Mm. And so, to- Toby, how have you, I mean, have you been following, like, um, sort of what's been your take on the whole rise of organized secularism and the new atheists and stuff? Did you follow it much? Were you excited about it? Were you skeptical of it? What do you think? You know, I'm, I'm happy to come on and talk about the, the atheism and that I, I share it, but uh, I actually really don't spend a lot of time reading these guys or thinking about it. I, I do feel that uh, I would like to see more protection or or less sort of um, less uh, antagonism towards atheism in general society, and so I will always sort of speak up and make sure that people know I am one um, in the in the belief that uh, I should be upfront about my beliefs so that people know uh, that I am not just automatically whatever they are, so that that assumption of the you know that assumption that everyone is of one particular mindset can cannot just sort of railroad you. And uh and I, you know I I just I have not followed them that closely. For a while there when I'd gotten out of college, I I I I live in a red county <laughs> which is very religious and went to a very religious small college and I think when I came out for like a year or two, I was still kind of uh bouncing off of everyone. And so I followed a lot of blogs and read a lot of books about what, you know, was happening in, in that, in that area. But I kind of, uh, tuned out of that because, um, I kind of want to push back a little bit against something, uh, Jim actually said, <laughs> which was that you felt that science fiction is in some ways hostile to religious thought. And I think what attracted, attracts me to atheism and, and the genre I work in is not so much a hostility, because I think that buys into the message that that uh, some religious people are trying to sell, that an absence of religion is hostile. And I think that what appeals to me about pushing back a little bit to gain some space in society to be atheist and about science fiction is that there's it's secular, which does not mean anti-religious. Secular just means you know, finding the common ground between lots of different kinds of religions and people with no religion and creating a structure in which we can all sort of be harmonious and focus on what, you know, the, like, you know, the Buddhists say, you know, the truth that is there, you know, if you just dig and dig and dig, whether or not you believe in it or not, you know, and, and to find that together, no matter what you believe is what interests me. And, uh, and if that sounds uh, a little hippie. That's mm-hmm. that's me. But no, and, uh, <laughs> and to be sure, there there is uh, such uh, science fiction puts such a premium on well, what we've been calling since time immemorial the sense of wonder, uh, which is certainly not discontinuous with the 
religious impulse. And your word, secular, Toby, is a very good one. And to go back to Hitler, you know, I think the last way that we have any right to characterize the the Third Reich is to say that it was secular. It was nothing of the kind. It was shot through with irrationalist beliefs, even if they weren't explicitly monotheistic. Um, I mean, but so, but so, Toby, I mean, you mentioned that actually that a lot of your readers don't know your feelings about religion uh, at all, which I suspect is not true of many of Jim's readers, right? Uh, <laughs> That's a safe. <laughs> I mean, do you, um, is that a conscious decision on your part or like just what role do you think that your non-belief plays in, in your fiction or how does it come through or not in your fiction? You know, it's definitely there in my fiction. I don't spend a you know, ton of time on uh, reacting, tussling. But I mean, there are lots of things that you'll find, you know, that I'm trying to interact with. I think it's it comes out of that belief I have that I was mentioning that it it's not something I actually spend a lot of my daily mental effort on. It was something I noticed when I was trying to explain it. I have a really good friend in town who's uh, literally a, a seventh-day creationist. You know, he believes the Earth was formed 3,000 years ago or what have you. And... You know, he and I sometimes have interesting lunches together. And when we were first working together and getting to know each other, he had a lot of questions for me. And I was trying to explain to him that sometimes he would ask me a question, which was just sort of the thing where I was like, I'll have to think about that and get back to you. And he's like, well, why don't you know this? And I'd say, <laughs> you know, it'd be like me asking you, like, what do you think of Hera's relationship with Zeus and the, you know, number of gods that they produced, demigods. You know, it's like, I'll have to get back to you on that. I, I haven't thought through that. I haven't, I don't have any feelings on that thing that you just asked me because I don't sit around and think about this. You know, when I, when I created a secular sort of mental space for myself, a, a lot of that stuff, you know, just sort of is not, not on the table for you to spend a lot of time thinking. So as a result, I think you can see if you read through my blog entries, Back in, you know, the uh, early 2000s, you can see a little bit more with me tussling with larger society and talking about atheism and and talking about my, you know, lack of belief and what it's like to be kind of a modern day uh, non-believer where, you know, people still say things like, you know, they would trust, you know, anyone other than an atheist in Pew surveys, you know, and they think an atheist would uh, be the least trustworthy person to become a politician and so forth and so on. And, and you sort of like, you know, encounter these little moments in daily life where people will say things around you and you suddenly realize that like, oh, wow, everyone thinks that people who are like me are monsters and baby killers. And, you know, and you have to pick and choose whether you're going to stand up and have this miniature battle or whether, you know, you just STFU and move on. And, you know, in the, in the 2000s, I, I had a lot more energy to throw at, at just tussling with people who said things that I found extremely dubious. Now I still point them out, but I'm not, uh, it just hasn't come up as much because I've, I don't know, maybe society has changed a little bit more in the last 10 years. Uh, maybe, you know, uh, people are fighting on other levels and uh, maybe the new atheism has gotten a little bit more um, attention to the arguments out there so that the the arguments that really bothered me and are no longer being tussled out as much. Or, you know, maybe there's a cognitive bubble I've been living in where I've just kind of like stopped reading certain things. And so I'm not getting mad about them. I'm not, I'm not really sure what happened there. 
I'd have to say, not all of my readers assume that I'm atheist. And by the way, I don't love the word atheist, you know, because it mm. only points to a void. And that's why I prefer <laughs> uh, humanist, secularist, whatever. But yeah. many of them find, because I take theology so seriously, and I take people of faith so seriously, they find a kind of faith, or at least quasi-religious affirmation in my books. Uh, and that's fine with me. When I receive an email from a believer uh, saying, you know, Jim, I'm really grateful you helped me to not take religion so damn seriously, uh, I'm very gratified. I mean, I, I love getting emails from, from atheists saying, you know, go, go for it, Jim. Give, the, give the, the dead carcass of religion one more kick in the groin for me. <laughs> but I'm much more interested in uh, the conversation. A, a, yeah. a grand post-enlightenment conversation, and that includes believers and non-believers and bewildered pilgrims, which is how I sometimes describe myself. There's a, there's a character, a minor character in my novel, Towing Jehovah, who is a Jewish, I think his name is Neil Weisinger, he's an able-bodied seaman, and he has uh, beliefs that come out of Jewish mysticism, um, the, this idea of the ensof the ensof, sort of the unknowable essence of God. He calls this unknowable essence the God of the 4 a.m. watch, you know, when you're on the, the foredeck of a super tanker and there's this canopy of stars and, 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 and you're in a timeless, almost spaceless zone. And uh, people will come up to me and say, are you making fun of this? Am I supposed, are you mocking the character of Neil Weisinger? And I say, no, not at all. He's speaking for himself, and at that moment, I'm trying to be him. The challenge mm -hmm. for me uh, is to create characters of faith who are um, credible, who are sympathetic, who are to some degree me. The, the satiric stuff comes naturally, but uh, creating believers is the challenge, and it's a challenge I relish. What's well, a challenge many religious people actually don't even face in their fiction, you know? There tends to be sometimes a secular by default, the sort of, you know, if I don't touch that live wire, even if it is something I share, then I don't have to get it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and in, in, in some ways, the, the, I think it's interesting to see there, you know, uh, Jim, some of the, the reviews and articles that respond to your work from uh, people who are believers, because I think there's, in some ways, your work generates more of an interesting conversation for believers than some of the stuff that is written by people who already believe. Yeah, and I and I think uh, you know, as as I often say, God put me here to argue against His existence, <laughs> and, and I think uh, I think many of my church-going readers are sort of responding to that to that paradox, um, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah. If, if, if we must use the word atheism, and it's sometimes an extremely useful word, I like to think that it's, it's as inclusive as, as any other worldview. Uh, you know, uh, I don't, who said nothing human is alien to me? Anyway, it's a great line, and, and that's how I feel. Okay, so Jim, I mean, you mentioned Towing Jehovah, uh, and I really want to ask you about the sequel, uh, Blameless and Abaddon. Yeah. Which they, they take the, the body of God that, that had died in the previous novel and put it on trial. And there's this whole trial about, you know, can you justify the ways of God to man? And it goes through all the classic arguments like that. And one of the criticisms of the new atheists 
this came up in the interview with Lawrence Krauss a little bit, is that they don't know enough theology. But having watched, I've watched years worth of these debates, and it, it's been seriously seven years since I heard a new argument. Um, <laughs> but but if, if I ever mention this, people are like, oh, no, you have to read this theologian, this theologian, this theologian. And I'm just suspicious that that, that they're not going to say anything new. And I just wonder, how, you wrote a whole book about these kinds of things. <laughs> like, do you ever, do you think that there are arguments, like really good arguments to justify either the existence of God or the morality of God out there that you haven't heard yet? Or is it all just, you know, it's all beating a dead horse, as you said? Well, I think the problem of evil is the greatest stumbling block to faith. You know, I'd have to say when I started researching Blameless in Abaddon, which is kind of a modern dress retelling of Job, and God is put on trial by this man who who has endured horrible and unjust suffering. Uh, when I embarked on the project, I said, well, it'll be easy to make the case for the prosecution. You know, a couple of kids with leukemia ought, ought to do that. And then when I got into the theology, I discovered there are entire shelves in serious libraries by Christian writers, by writers of faith, grappling with the problem of evil. Christianity, to its credit, has taken the problem of pain very seriously. Uh, not the Christian who wrote the book called The Problem of Pain, uh, C.S. Lewis, um, who, for my money, utterly trivializes uh, human suffering, you know, in the name of, of redeeming God, anything to protect that bastard reputation, anything to, to uh, enlist uh, our allegiance to, to the divine. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, actually, I owe a kind of debt to The Problem of Pain because my anger at that book the way it trivializes human suffering kept me going, kept me returning to the word processor day <laughs> in, day out. So, um, yeah, I, I think uh, the, the arguments that try to use your, your phrase, Dave, justify the ways of God to man all well, To be fair, I didn't actually come up with that phrase. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, think, I think the five great theodicies, uh, you know, the free will defense and the ontological defense and the disciplinary defense and the, um, uh, the eschatological defense uh, and the hidden harmony defense, um, they all fail. And it's fascinating to me why they fail. Um, I should also mention uh, a book by uh, Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein, who uh, was there at the foundation of this uh, International Society for Heresy Studies, her recent novel called 36 Arguments for the Existence of God is, uh, in fact, nothing of the kind. It's uh, um, sneaky <laughs> go going beyond evil, uh, uh, the problem of evil, the whole problem of does God exist or not is addressed in this marvelous appendix uh, allegedly written by the protagonist of Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein's novel. It's about a, uh, a character named Cass Seltzer, who uh, is perhaps vaguely based on Sam Harris, but it's not a romantic clay. He's, he's called the, uh, the atheist with a soul, and he's become uh, a media celebrity for being able to make arguments that, using the tools of analytic philosophy, refute all of the, uh, all the traditional, all 36 <laughs> of, the, of the classical proofs of God. So it's, it's a tour de force. Read the book for the delight of the story, but don't skip the appendix. It's just brilliant. Um, well, so Jim, do you want to tell us about your new book, The Madonna and the Starship, which 
in a lot of ways seems almost like a parody or a, a critique of the new atheists. I don't know if that's how it's intended, but. Um, yeah, it's, it's another James Morrow thought experiment. Uh, a little hard to summarize. It's wall to wall plotting, but the, the, hmm. <laughs> uh, the, the main character is a, is a science fiction pulp writer named Kurt Jastrow, uh, who plays an eccentric tinkerer on a children's program uh, called Uncle Wonder's Attic. Uh, he's doing science experiments for kids. Uh, character is clearly based on Don Herbert of uh, Watch Mr. Wizard fame. Um, so one day, a couple of sentient lobsters uh, from planet Qualamoso show up to give Kurt, my hero, an award for his contribution to keeping the light of reason burning throughout the, the Milky Way. So they are logical positivists from outer space. Uh, and their world is extremely anti-metaphysical. Um, so after they give Kurt the award, they go to leave the NBC studio. This all takes place in 1953 during the age of, uh, the age of live television uh the lobsters catch a rehearsal for a religious program called not by bread alone they're horrified of course uh, this is friday afternoon when they see the rehearsal the show is going to be broadcast on sunday so kurt has just 40 hours to try to convince the lobsters that not by bread alone is really a satiric program that mocks religion because uh, if he doesn't do this the aliens will retrofit a death ray onto the carrier wave of not by bread alone, and zap all of the uh, all of the millions of viewers of of the show. Um, so the only way that Kurt can do this is to write and produce a new teleplay and make that the Sunday morning broadcast. And the lobsters, the aliens watching this, will see. Oh yes, uh, Earth is actually a, a completely secular planet. So um, am I mocking the new atheist? Hadn't thought about that. I guess I'm acknowledging that um, there is uh, maybe a kind of atheism that um, could degenerate into nihilism. Um, there is, um, a, to, to be sure, uh, many strains, for my money, almost all strains of religion also have that, uh, that, that potential. But it was fun to kind of argue against my own worldview up to a point. Um, but it develops that these, these logical positivists from outer space, these, these anti-metaphysical lobsters, um, really don't take the doubt part seriously. They don't take the skepticism part seriously. And that's why they're prepared to kill, uh, two million, uh, TV, TV viewers come, come Sunday morning. So I, I guess, uh, I like the fact that my atheist hero uh, intuitively, intuitively says, well, I must do everything in my power to, uh, uh, to protect these believers. Because, you know, as Toby was saying earlier, atheists are so often thought of as, as uh, immoral people, you know, unless we have a moral compass handed down by God, uh, we'll, we're prepared to, to uh, commit mass murder. I think Ivan Karamazov gets it exactly wrong. The famous line in Dostoevsky's novel where Ivan says, well, without God, everything is permitted. 
seems to me <laughs> that we have a large and bloody body of evidence suggesting something like the opposite, that with God, everything is permitted. That if God tells you to start a crusade, um, uh, or that it's okay to drive the getaway car for a pedophile priest, well, then the conversation's over. That settles it. That's a big problem. Hmm. All right, so we're running, we're starting to run up on time here. Um, Toby, Toby, do you have any other uh, works of yours that deal with atheism or religion or anything that you want to point people to? You know, I'm always playing with. I think if you read my uh, my, uh, my my Caribbean space operas like Crystal Rain, Ragamuffin, and Slime Mongoose, one of the things I I do in them is I have a a sort of artificial religion made by aliens that's that's believed by people and. Uh, they take it very seriously, particularly since the aliens who cr- claim their gods are are manifest and visible, which is sort of always a compelling argument. And uh, one of the things that I've never seen a reviewer kind of pick up on is that uh, I kind of mature the religion over the books. So in the first book, it is a a, a new and and very bloody religion that people follow quite literally. And come uh, ragamuffin, the the vestiges of that and the reactions to it are kind of being sorted up. And by Sly Mongoose, which comes along much later, you can see that this religion has kind of become a uh, an older religion that uh, people follow. But it is uh, figured out how to um, compensate for the the early bloodiness. And uh, that sort of the evolution of religion always kind of fascinates me, the way some religions can kind of mature into a way in which they can allow a cosmopolitan you know, group of people to live within them and people of different beliefs to interact with it without kind of being convulsively militaristic. And there's a there's just a little bit of that if if people are paying attention, you know the big thing I'm I'm working on right now is I'm trying to write a, a couple of uh, sort of techno thriller like novels about global warming and and that's uh, that actually does get to the heart of some of what I was talking about in terms of secularism and openness to science because writing these novels actually exposes me to a great deal of of right wing religious uh, lashback because the the sort of uh, state religion weird, you know, conservatism plus evangelicalism have kind of, you know, wrapped around each other into this uh, thing that uh, convinces people that if they're evangelical and right-wing, that they also are, you know, basically against science right now in terms of, you know, the realization about global warming and its impending problems. So right now I'm engaged in sort of a dialogue where a lot of people are very angry with me for trying to write a novel that kind of, you know, game plays out what it'll look like when the Arctic Circle is done melting, which it's on in the process of. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, you, we have this terrifying phenomenon of members of Congress saying, like, there's obviously there's no global warming because God promised in the Bible not to flood the earth again. So, you know, case closed. There you go. Case closed. And and that gets back to what Jim was saying, which is that you can, you there's this entirely scary lack of engagement with people who just use God says, right? Like what you, you cannot have a, a sort of functioning society that grapples with science and that grapples with any rational stuff. When you have a large number of people that just sort of go, uh, uh-uh, God said, you know, you, it's really tough to kind of figure out what the consensual reality is when you have that. And so right now we have a number of people who actually are just straight up denying 
you know, uh, what looks like a very, very solid consensus reality. You know, I've done a couple talks and stuff. I remember talking to some students where one of them says, like, I just don't believe it. And, and, it's, and it's sort of, you know, this, it's really tough to get around that where someone just says, I don't believe it. You know, you can't, you can't say, like, here are some charts and here's the science and here's what we see happening. And here are pictures from 50 years ago that show massive glaciers here. And here are pictures from today that show none. And they say, that isn't happening. I don't believe it. Right. And then you go like, well, I, I'm actually having a problem here. I don't know what to say to you. You know, it's really, really tough to talk. So when, when people post these angry people you mentioned on, on the internet, and maybe they email you, do you try to respond to those? Or do you just sort of say, <laughs> it's not even, there's no point? It's- I'll give one go around because usually a lot of these pe- a lot of people will send the same links and the same arguments. As you were saying, no new argument under the sun. It becomes very boringly similar. So I do have like a basic template for returning basic inquiries because sometimes you can tell people that like, hey, you're using really bad data. This is made up stuff. You know, scientists actually don't believe that. Here's a look at, you know, here's a PLOS query. You can go run and look up the academic articles. And and sometimes, you know, maybe I'm not going to say that I'm, I refuse to dialogue with people because that's not really helpful. Um, saying that it does get tiring is because I'm not a I'm not a climate science expert, you know, I'm 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 an author. I did a lot of research, but I'm I have a notoriously civ-like mind and I'm, you know, just as you noticed from bringing up a blog entry from <laughs> 12 years ago and I was like that sounds wonderful. I'm glad I said those things. Go <laughs> me. Um yeah, things things are falling out of my head as fast as I can put them in there. So, it is really tough to kind of, you know, get into a knockout drag down argument with someone about this because it's like I have I have other things to write and I only have so many hours a day, but you know, I do try, I do try to engage and, and honestly engage from a position of, of, of seeking to find out why someone believes this thing. And, you know, if it's someone who has bad information and and stuff like that, we can go around and I can give them some sites and say, go, go poke around. But if it's someone who just sort of throws up their hand and says, it can't be real because I'm religious, that is so dangerous, I think. And, and it's so perplexing. God is such a such a trump card or kind of a <laughs> trump sledgehammer. And yeah, now suddenly with global warming, the stakes are really high. And, uh, you know, I salute yeah. you, Toby, for, for fighting the good fight. We have to try to drag these people into the open-ended post-enlightenment conversation in which scientific knowledge, to be sure, is uh, provisional, but it's also progressive. And if you don't believe in progressive knowledge, um, uh you know, you're, you're, you're missing out on being fully alive. Okay, so, so Jim, I mean, I, I feel like we can't talk about climate change without also talking about evolution. And I know for a long time you've been working on this Darwin book. Um, it seems like many of your books take a really long time to come out. I don't know to what extent that has to do with their controversial <laughs> nature or not. But what's, what's this? tell us about the, the Darwin book and what's the story with that? Yeah, well, I'm kind of a perfectionist for better or worse. So, so uh, my relatively unprolific output is uh, a function of my being my own worst enemy. But yeah, the last uh, couple of the of my most recent novels were difficult to sell, and I don't know if it's because um, of their uh, of their uh, intensely skeptical content. That's maybe another day's discussion. Uh, but on the runway. 
due to appear in uh, January, is my novel about the coming of the Darwinian worldview, an historical novel. It's called Galapagos Regained, and it's all about Charles Darwin's zookeeper, a fictional character named Chloe Bathurst, uh, who's in charge of live specimens that Darwin brought back from, uh, from his world travels, from the Galapagos archipelago in particular, giant tortoises and, uh, and exotic birds and marine iguanas. Now, to be sure, Darwin didn't really bring a menagerie back, but uh, the fine print in my poetic license uh, lets, lets me imagine that. So uh, at one point, Chloe, the zookeeper, gets wind of something called the Great God Contest, sponsored by the Percy Bysshe Shelley Society. 10,000 pounds to the first philosopher or theologian or scientist or sage who can prove or disprove the existence of God. Chloe, hanging out with Darwin and his colleagues, has gotten a sense that the theory of evolution by natural selection is at base an atheist argument. So she thinks she can win the gold by appearing before the judges uh, in, in Oxford. Um when she tells Darwin she would love to enter the contest, can I please borrow these illustrative specimens? Can I have a couple of giant tortoises and, and some of these birds over here and a few uh, marine iguanas? He's horrified. He thinks this is a very tawdry contest. Um, it's a scandal, in fact. So Chloe has to take matters into her own hands and recapitulate Darwin's voyage in an attempt to round up the same live, very vivid, and from her point of view, very persuasive illustration. So it's a kind of epic that maybe uh, nods to Voltaire's Candide and, and Verne's Around the World in, in 80 Days. Um, and uh, I won't tell you how it all plays out. Uh, <laughs> the, other th the other thing I've been getting into um, is blogging, uh, especially about this sort of spate of um, uh, journeys, the genre of journeys to heaven. Uh, but about a year ago, I, um, uh, spoke my mind about the book called Heaven is for Real by Todd Burpo, whose son Colton, uh, apparently had a near death experience from peritonitis and went to heaven and was dandled on Jesus's knee. Uh, more recently, and I haven't written this essay yet, uh, we have Dr. Eben Alexander's book called Proof of heaven um I, and what bewilders me about both those books is the failure of the authors to ask what i think of as fundamental questions um most especially well how does god feel about the fact that his cover has been blown how does he feel about this unequivocal proof because there's not a, there's not one syllable of doubt in either Heaven is for Real by Burpo or Proof of Heaven by, by Alexander. Uh, you know, here God has been messing with our heads for thousands and thousands of years. You know, he's been hiding himself, declining, declining to answer our prayers, at least hasn't been doing so reliably, declining to intervene at Auschwitz or in the case of Hiroshima. Suddenly the game is up uh, and God has been unequivocally unmasked. How does he, did he really want this to play out in that fashion? I mean, does, does he really want uh, the ultimate revelation to take the form of a New York Times bestseller? Uh, <laughs> that seems preposterous to me.
I have, to, I have to say, Jim, I, I loved your line. It, it was something like the, the dad isn't surprised at all when his kid tells him that St. Paul was wrong and Family Circus was right. Uh, yeah, yeah. He doesn't seem to have taken any notice of the fact that his kid, uh, you know, went to, uh, uh, went to heaven uh, as a Methodist and came back a heretic, um, <laughs> both vis-a-vis St. Paul and then just the whole argument. Uh, the whole Trinitarian argument that uh, God and the Son and the uh, and and the ghosts are all of the same substance, as opposed to the Arian heresy that has Jesus being a, a kind of secondary divinity, not wholly commensurate with God, and yet there's all of these snapshots in Heaven Is for Real of God and Jesus in which Jesus seems to be playing a subordinate role. It doesn't make any theological sense unless the kid has become a heretic. So anyway, <laughs> you, know, you know, the other thing that so bewilders me about, uh, about this genre, um, is, and, and I think they, they sort of map onto alien abduction stories. In other words, not a single shred of substantive corroboration and that if only one of these people would return from heaven with a mathematical proof. I mean, for heaven's sakes, Eben Alexander saw the face of God. Could he exit with maybe a beautiful sonnet in his head now? Um, or, or something that isn't this new age boilerplate that he lays on us in the second half of the book. For me, it's ultimately a very nihilistic view. Um, Alexander talks about how everything that uh, we think of as the physical world, the given universe, that's just a speck of dust. That's, that's his metaphor. It's just a grain of sand. Uh, you know, all of human achievement, all of human suffering, a speck of dust. What a nihilistic view that is, ultimately. So I don't think that's how the author constructs it. Hmm. All right, we should probably start wrapping this up. But Jim, if people want to read some of these blog posts you're talking about, how do they find you online? Where, sh- where should they go? Uh, well, if you just uh, Google the passionate rationalist, uh, that's the name of my blog, and I think it's the first hit you get. And yeah, you can read my my deconstruction of heaven is for real and um, some of my unhappy thoughts about uh, a, a public intellectual named Chris Hedges and his uh, his his critique of the new atheists, and then. Uh, I will attempt to set the world straight about about uh, the book called Proof of Heaven uh, in the next month or so. <laughs> all right, great. Yeah, and I, I would just strongly encourage all our listeners to go check out Jim's books. He's one of my favorite contemporary writers. And, and I've always thought that, you know, uh, uh, my ideal society would be one where I would just see everyone reading James Morrow books on the subway. Uh, so... Hopefully, you, you know, I'd know. have to confess, that's not too far <laughs> from my idea. <laughs> Um, and Toby, why don't you, I mean, you mentioned uh, Hurricane Fever. Why don't you just tell us a little bit more about the plot and just any other projects you want to let people know about? Sure. Uh, Hurricane Fever is a uh, follow-up to Arctic Rising, but it stands on its own. It's a story of uh, Prudence Jones, a Caribbean spy who's yanked out of retirement when his uh, when the teenager he's taking care of is uh, uh, killed uh, in St. Thomas and uh, a friend of a dead friend of his uh, kind of asks him for a favor through uh, a voicemail. So 
it's set in the Caribbean. There's a lot of sort of uh, James Bond-esque escapades, and it uh, deals with the sort of the heavy weather and and lots of uh, explosions and high action, as is my want. Um, you can find out more, of course, at uh, www.tobiasbuckel.com. I have all sorts of I'm, – I'm well linked up so that you can <laughs> find first chapters, free chapters, and all that good stuff for all the books. All right, great. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So, uh, Jim, thanks for joining us. Well, you're very welcome. This was a lot of fun. And uh, Toby, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on the show, always. And that was our panel. So thanks again to James Morrow and Tobias Bakel for joining us as guest geeks. And, of course, big thanks again to Lawrence Krauss for being our guest today. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Co Linear in Greece and Arthur Waltron in Austria. And, of course, a special thank you to all of our crowdfunders, including H.A.A.M. Vandervelden, crowdfunder number five, Jonathan Pottle, crowdfunder number seven, and Carl Watson, crowdfunder number 35. So thanks, guys. It's nice to know you're still listening and enjoying the show. And, of course, a huge thank you to all of our monthly crowdfunders, including George Tricot, Raymond Chan, Kurt Donaldson, Scott Osterling, and Bruno Ankier. We couldn't do it without you. To learn more about supporting the show, visit us at geeksguideshow.com and click on crowdfunding. Also, just want to let everyone know that I'll be co-editing a book called Conversations with Philip K. Dick, which will collect all the best Philip K. Dick interviews we can find. There will definitely be a lot more about this project in an upcoming episode. If anyone knows of any good Philip K. Dick interviews, especially rare or unpublished ones, please email me at geeksgalaxy at gmail.com and let me know. Also, please let me know if there's anyone you think I should talk to about material for the book, and please pass along word of this project to any big Philip K. Dick fans you know. Thanks. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarrkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.